Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest will be Michael Kibbins. Kibbins joined Lawyers for Civil Rights, LCR, as the Lauren Sampson Fellow in 2023. In this role, Michael represents clients in a variety of civil rights cases, including police accountability, education, employment, and climate justice. Michael also previously served as a judicial clerk to the Honorable Margot Botsford of Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and to the Honorable R. Malcolm Graham of the Massachusetts Appeals Court. Michael will be speaking to us about affirmative action and legacy admissions. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins, Aiken, South Carolina, been here about 30 years, grew up in Massachusetts, moved here after my time in the Navy and working for Westinghouse in the nuclear power business and came here to work on nuclear waste cleanup, now retired from doing all that, living here with my wife. Okay, uh, Ronnie. Living here in Newton, Massachusetts with my wife, um, class of 63, one-time roommate of John Woodford, worked in TV and video, still doing some of that, and climate volunteering with, you know, and, um, you know, volunteering with several people who are on this uh, podcast. Okay. Hamp. Uh, Hamp Howell, Harvard 63, from New York and Boston, living in uh, Nashville since 1978. Uh clinical psychology and agitated about the state of the uh, world. Okay. Uh, Allison, Cindy. Hi. Uh, Allison Wardle, Cindy Wardle, uh, class of 63, um, here in uh, Rodden County, Tuscany, uh, have retired and living here. Um, we have vineyards, new vineyards. Um, Guess that's it. <laughs> okay, Alden. Uh, born in, also class of 63, born in Mass uh, General, uh, grew up in New England, uh, have lived in Aiken, South Carolina, Baltimore, D.C., uh, Flint, Michigan, Chicago, but for the last 30 years in San Mateo, California, south of San Francisco. My wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. Okay, Peter. Yes, I'm an editor and writer. I live up in the northern tip of New Hampshire in a little old logging town, uh, which if you blink once or twice, you will miss it entirely. However, it does have a cigar bar on the main drag, so John will be welcome and feel at home as he comes by. And uh, back in the day, I was in the civil rights movement. I worked with SNCC in South Georgia, and I had the honor and pleasure of meeting a number of the famous civil rights lawyers of that era, without which the movement could not have functioned at all at many levels. Uh, hi, I'm Liz Morey. I'm also class of 63, Radcliffe. Uh, currently live in Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of DC, but uh, identify as a Californian, where I grew up and spent many years in Fresno, California. I'm a almost completely retired clinical psychologist. Okay, Jerry. Uh, Jerry Secundi, Pasadena, California, living with my wife of 48 years. 
Um, environmental lawyer, uh, mostly doing water quality, still has have my hand in. And for those of you who are depressed, if you haven't read American Midnight, things are really not as bad as they were back in the 1920s. So John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was editing and writing a university publication and also um, in Chicago, where I was born uh, as the editor of Muhammad Speaks and in New York area. So back here for quite a while. I'm Ann Huberman, class of 63, retired academic librarian and currently climate activist in Peterborough, New Hampshire, Southwest New Hampshire. Okay, Jeff. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jeff Fox. Uh, for many years, I was teaching sociology in various universities. I'm uh, originally from Chicago, now living in Spain and writing, mostly fiction. Okay, David Allen. David Allen, Concord, Massachusetts, living with my partner of 35 years, also class of 63. She may insist that I go get a dog license if we can't get the hair cutter to come by soon enough. <laughs> put a bowl over my head. Uh, early years in business startups and then university, but uh, life these decades is about activism, particularly in democracy. Looking forward to the civil rights discussion today. Good. Doug. Hi, Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville, Kentucky with uh, with my wife, my second wife, uh, also class of 63. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and but I've lived around the U.S. and I think in seven different countries. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, I'm a, a retired physician and behavioral ecologist and uh, uh, enjoying my retirement. Okay, David Othmer. Also class of 63 and uh, Jerry Secundi's roommate at Harvard. I, I, after after uh, the college, I, I took a year off but then went to Harvard Business School. So I was business school 66. And I've been in the nonprofit world almost all my life, first with public broadcasting, uh, or, or mainly with public broadcasting, first in New York City, and for the last several decades in Philadelphia. Okay, Ann Groves. Hi, I'm Ann Groves. I'm class of 63, currently dividing my time between uh, DC, where I am currently, and San Francisco. Um, I'm I don't know. I'm a longtime civil rights and uh, environmental and anti-war activist looking for different ways of getting involved or staying involved. George Jones, class of 63, also in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And because the city of Ann Arbor has regulations against charcoal grills, I have to go over to John's house to grill. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Okay, Dorothy. Uh, I graduated from Harvard in our class of 63. I went straight to uh, the Harlem Action Group, stayed in Harlem for the next 24 years as a teacher and activist in education, started with others, a parent-controlled school, the East Harlem Block Schools that exists uh, successfully to today. And then I uh, ended up starting Youth Build and spreading that around the country for young people who left high school without a diploma to build affordable housing in their neighborhoods while earning their high school diploma, getting ready for uh, the community leaders. And 
it's been an enjoyable uh, path in life. Okay, and Michael, Michael Kibbins, thank you for joining us and uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here with you today. I'm Michael Kippens. I am originally from the Albany, New York area, but now living in the Boston area. I am a Cornell grad, unlike those on this call, class of 2010, but I've been living in the Boston area for about 13 years and went to law school at the at Northeastern. So I am now a civil rights litigator, but Prior to this, for the past eight years or so, I worked in commercial and business litigation defense at some firms around town. Okay, and tell us now about uh, affirmative action and legacy admissions. That's what we wanted to talk about. Sure, sure. Happy to happy to discuss. So I think I'll start with what we all know was the Supreme Court decision that came down about a month ago now that substantially limited the use and consideration of race in the admissions process. And so from the perspective of you know us at Lawyers for Civil Rights, if I didn't say that's where I work, I work at a nonprofit called Lawyers for Civil Rights. The perspective that we have on it is we're likely to see a precipitous drop in diversity on campus if there aren't real efforts made towards recruitment and retention from schools, and certainly not just Harvard and UNC. And so this is a time when we'll see universities reassess what their admissions practices look like in light of the decision and in order to comply with it. And where I'll start with is there's still a window. You know, there's still a window where race can be a factor in the consideration of one's application. And the way that that looks is essentially for the applicant to put that forward in their application. So just to read one line from the opinion that I think is useful in this discussion, it is nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So that we see as, as a bit of a window, a bit of a way that schools can still consider race as part of the application process, but that that burden in some way shifts towards the applicant to put that in the application, to present that as a piece of their background and explain how their particular experience with race has shaped the person that they've become and why that person is someone that these schools, particularly Harvard here, uh, why Harvard should be interested in receiving them and admitting them into the class, what they would provide and how that they would help to diversify the class in terms of their own individual merit. So a piece of what we know now is that the Supreme Court has been narrowing the consideration of race in the higher education admissions for decades. Uh, there have been many cases that have come along from the, you know, the universe, the Regents University case versus Backey. There's the, the Gruder and Bollinger case. There's the Fisher case, many of which have assessed and analyzed whether and to what extent 
race can be a piece of the consideration for universities and how that process looks. So what we glean from the decision is essentially that the Supreme Court is saying that universities need to take an individualized look at the applicant and cannot consider race as a sort of group factor in the sense that a person's affiliation or a person's particular race does not automatically mean that they have some set of circumstances that follows them that should adhere that should ignore to their benefit and give them a plus factor in the admissions process. So that's the sort of affirmative action piece. And I can talk about that more as we go along, but to move a little bit to the donor and legacy preferences that we at Lawyers for Civil Rights have now challenged. So in light of the Supreme Court's decision, and as I said earlier, we would likely see a drop in the admission rates for people of color, applicants of color, to higher education institutions, and particularly the more prestigious universities. So in light of that, we filed a federal civil rights complaint at the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights to challenge Harvard's practice of using donor-related and legacy admissions preferences that are discriminatory towards applicants of color. In terms of some of the data that we analyzed and that we've relied on experts to analyze, you know, donor and legacy related applicants are approximately six to seven times more likely to be admitted into Harvard in particular. And they, the applicants who are admitted through these preferences are seven, uh, nearly 70% white for the classes. And so what we've learned from some expert conclusions of the data that we have that Harvard produced during the affirmative action litigation, we know that if these preferences, donor and legacy particularly, were removed, it would increase the admissions rates for applicants of color. So I have filed, along with others at Lawyers for Civil Rights, a federal civil rights complaint and that's the practice that we're challenging under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits programs and organizations that receive federal funding from discriminating on the basis of race. So that's where we are. We have learned just recently, as of about two weeks ago, that the Department of Education has decided to open the investigation. So the investigation has now been opened and the Department of Education will open the investigation and take a look at what we're saying in our complaint. They will analyze some of the specifics. They will go to Harvard and hopefully interview key personnel that are dealing with these issues on the front line and that are in place to try to reassess what policies should, should continue going forward. And what we urge the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights to do is to do one of a few things, either, you know, certainly to declare this practice in violation of Title VI, but also to say that if Harvard wants to continue receiving federal funding from the Department of Education, that this practice needs to cease. So 
we are looking at the Department of Education, which has very broad powers of investigation, very broad powers with respect to organizations and universities in particular that receive federal funding to acquire data, to ensure compliance, and to ensure basically equitable access to higher education. And so I'll leave it there and happy to answer direct questions and to talk more generally about any of the topics that I've described or ones that you would like to talk about. Okay. Uh, Jeff. Well, I don't, I, I think he, uh, you've made it very clear um, and that uh, clear, that legacy is really the major problem, um, a greater, a greater problem than the, uh, Taking then affirmative action taken into account in the uh, in the in, in the initial admissions process is that right? I'm not sure I would phrase it as it being a bigger problem, but it certainly is an issue, a greater issue now that we know that the affirmative action decision has come uh -huh. down and the limits placed on the consideration of race. It's become all the more important to ensure that barriers to applicants of color will be eliminated, including legacy, right. and particularly at Harvard, legacy for some of the years that we have data for can make up nearly a third of the class. And legacy wow. described in that sense as being, you know, any relative that's gone to Harvard previously. Certainly there's the more strict definition, which is having a, an actual parent who has attended Harvard, but in a broader sense, you know, I think the number for 2019 was about 28% of the class had a legacy affiliation as you know any relative that has attended Harvard. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Thanks, George. So, haven't read your complaint, needless to say, but what's the evidence that eliminating legacies will actually lead to increased numbers of minority students? What? Why wouldn't eliminating legacies just just result in more white and Asian students being admitted? So a piece of what the data is, so the data I should step back comes from Harvard's admissions and application data that they it disclosed during the litigation in the affirmative action case. That's where some of the material, the background material comes from. And the data is a study, and I can share the study, and it's also linked in the complaint, which both of which I can share. The data says essentially that people who are receiving these preferences, many of them are not as qualified you know, in, a mer in an individual meritorious sense as many of the applicants of color. So if these preferences are removed and people are, applicants are viewed on an even playing field with respect to their actual individual merit, that applicants of color would be more qualified than many of the legacies who are admitted. I think in a general sense, not strictly, but in a general sense, I think the idea is if there are qualified people who are applying to Harvard and they are of all different races, then the idea is that Harvard's class should reflect in a general sense what the populations are uh, in the U.S. population more generally. Not to say that, for example, if there's a 16% of U.S of the US population is African American, that Harvard's class should be 16%. I think the idea is more so 
we want to make sure that Harvard is looking at folks that are from these backgrounds and not simply saying whoever is applying to us is going to be the field that we just take as is, right? So in your example of the person who walks into the grocery store and says and sees that there's five five times more steak than chicken on the shelves, well, I might suggest <clears throat> you use that grocery store and another grocery store. And you and the example that I'm using is for purposes of saying that I believe Harvard's recruitment process is a piece of what we should also be talking about because the idea is Harvard is a very substantial institution. It has a lot of resources. There are going to be many ways in which it can recruit that will reach students and app and potential applicants, whereas those applicants may not even apply to Harvard because they don't think that they even that they will be admitted. So I think a piece of it is you have to sort of go out and find people if that's the result that you want to have. And Harvard has repeatedly indicated whether, you know, in a general sense, whether in court and litigation, that diversity is one of its top interests in maintaining or to maintain in going forward. So if that's what they mean, and if and if that's and we should believe that diversity is one of their interests and one of their goals, that they're going to have to make efforts to ensure that that happens, right? And so before the Supreme Court decision came down, there were ways of doing that, that were self-selection in the application process where an applicant can simply check a box to indicate what race they are. Certainly they can add in more than that in their essays and etc. But that way existed. Now, there are going to be more limited ways to find people, but there are certainly still ways. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I hope that I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it kind okay. of seems, seems to me that the, the Supreme Court's decision is not operating using what I think of as a, a true definition of equality. You know, one white person equals one black person. And if you want to consider these other kind of racial categories or something or not racial, but whatever you, you want to consider like Hispanics, one for one. And so I think the Harvard Admissions Committee should be trying to balance the same actual number of people who are whites and blacks and you know Asian Americans and so forth, and uh, but it doesn't seem to me like that that's even part of the discussion anymore. No. Yeah. So yeah. to that point, I think a piece of it is there are certain restrictions on how you can phrase and analyze how you're going to create a class. I think one piece of the Supreme Court's decision or one takeaway from it that we have is that a sort of back-end engineering of the class is something that's going to be prohibited. And what I mean by a back-end engineering is that certainly at the very outset, when you go through the admissions process, there are more people who are recommended to be admitted than Harvard's traditional number of admitted students. So at that point, when they are deciding, let's say that Harvard's class is going to be 2,000 people, and they have 2,500 people who are qualified and who are recommended by the admissions officers 
and they need to winnow that down to 2000. One of the ways that they've done that in the past is by considering certainly things like legacy and, and donor relationships, but also uh, racial balancing. And balancing may not be the exact right word, but in a sense, it's to ensure that race plays a part in the admissions process and race plays a part in who's actually admitted. And what the Supreme Court is saying is that that on itself is not something that is going to be permitted, right? So it's really a focus on individualized merit, individualized holistic way of looking at what an applicant brings to the table. But in terms of actual numbers and percentages, that those are things that you really should be looking at at a later point, or at the very least, you should be looking at it on the front end in the recruitment process. So if you recruit a lot of people who are of color, or if you recruit sort of equal numbers, then you get applicants who are equal numbers, and then you make admissions decisions in equal numbers. That's that's certainly possible, but the way that that will actually work is probably going to be fairly complex for Harvard. Okay, Ronnie. You. Ron, you're... You're muted. Okay. Thank you. I'm trying oh. to understand something from the university's point of view. I mean, we often lump the terms legacy and donor together. <laughs> and I'm trying to... So in my mind, legacy, um, what's in it for the university? Because my dad went to Harvard and I go to Harvard. What, is it, what does that give to the university other than some kind of tradition? I don't, I, I, so I'd love to understand that better. I understand if my dad gives $50 million for the Teddy Blau chemistry lab, you know, that's a big thing for the university. So, you know, I can sort of understand it from their point of view. And I'm wondering in all this, if legacy is not going to be an admissible criterion, what kind of hit will the university take? Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll start with the, the first question of what do we, or what do you, are the asserted benefits to the university of having legacies, right? And some of the asserted benefits are that it creates the very tradition that you spoke of and that it creates a sense of community on campus. And I should start by saying, I don't necessarily agree with what these asserted benefits are, but these are some of the asserted benefits. So it creates a sense of community on the campus. It links people who are not from that tradition as applicants to those who have that tradition. So whether you're coming as a first generation student to college at Harvard, or you're, or you are simply an applicant who is admitted to Harvard and isn't a legacy, that you're connecting those people, those applicants or now admitted students to legacies who can both create a sense of community, but also would create relationships, connections, a network of people who can help you succeed and sort of help fulfill the, the uh -huh. wheel, help complete the wheel going forward. And in terms of what what hit the university would take, there are some studies to say, and there are certainly universities who have done away with their legacy admissions preferences. So we know a little bit of data from that. And those universities are doing just fine. You know, they, they certainly have not 
had complaints because frankly, they, if they really wanted to, they could reinstate their legacy policies. So, you know, it's a choice that those universities have made that is an acknowledgement, frankly, that it's not a burden to the university to not have legacy admissions. And that many of, certainly many of the people who would be admitted through legacy preferences in the first place are qualified. You know, they have the other types of meritorious arguments and and applications that many applicants of color have. So it's not as though, you know, from a university perspective, if you do away with legacy, you're going to do away with, you know, the same types of people who might end up at Harvard anyway. Those people are, in large part, still going to be qualified. So they have almost as good a chance as getting into Harvard as they would otherwise. And certainly those with legacy and donor relationships are like more likely to be in a position of having private help, whether that's private tutors, SAT prep, you know, other types of advantages that just being socioeconomically advantaged would have. So I think what you would see is many of the, much of the time, Harvard would still have plenty of students who are legacies, but just weren't admitted through those preferences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Liz. Yeah. I think I'm not muted, hopefully. Um, so well, uh, I, I understood that um, California uh, got rid of um, affirmative action back in the late 90s. And I assume that that applies to Stanford as well as to the UCs. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, as your team was thinking about uh, affirmative action, and obviously the legacy I think is a very important question, uh, what you might have learned from the California example in terms of uh, maintaining diversity in the student bodies, both at the public and private institutions there? Sure. So I think what you're referring to is Proposition 209 that I think came out in around 1996. And I think what we learned from that is some data that I had said earlier about the precipitous drop in in diversity on campus, particularly at the state schools, the University of California system, and that it declined sharply in the few years after the Proposition 209 went into effect. It is now back at numbers that are greater than they used to be in terms of diversity. So that shows a a positive outlook in the long term, but certainly in the short term, there was a big hit, excuse me, a big hit to diversity. So that's one of the things that we've looked at. That's one of the things that we think is going to be important in light of the Supreme Court's decision. And that really tells us that we're going to need to have a concerted effort for recruitment and retention by Harvard and by community organizations and by applicants and by you know, the community at large, really, to ensure that diversity is something that is maintained on campus because what was a traditional tool of maintaining diversity is now not at the, not at the ready for, for Harvard's admissions officers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, Michael, I, I'd like to try try out turning around the uh, lens uh, from uh, like to, to, to just look at things from a different point of view. Uh, 
uh, I, I see you've, you've, you've had a very distinct, you, you're one of the youngest speakers that we've had, but you've had a quite distinguished career in running at Cornell and being named one of the, one of the uh, top 40 uh, young uh, lawyers in uh, Massachusetts, et cetera. Uh, I just wanted to ask you if 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 you reach a very age like uh, like we are, what, what <laughs> would you like to have? What would you like to say that you've done with the uh, uh, rest of your life? So much is uh, open to you, and and assuming that we still have a functioning world here, which is questionable. Uh, 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 if 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 you're life went in the directions that you wanted to go, what would you be saying? Sure. So one, thank you for, for your kind words. And two, in terms of what I'd like to see, I'd like to see it as a very initial point, this complaint go to come to fruition through the Department of Education and eliminate donor and legacy preferences in universities and colleges across the country. There, one thing that I didn't mention is that there are there is a federal bill that is that has been proposed and that is going to be reproposed that would end legacy admissions at the federal level which would include all institutions and which would obviate the need to really have this investigation by the department of education because no school would be able to use at least at this point legacy preferences because that's what's in the bill we've seen a similar bill in Colorado that passed. And so Colorado, as a state, does not allow its public universities to use legacy preferences as a piece of their consideration in the process. And at a, at a broader scale, in terms of the, you know, the rest of my life, I would like to see efforts like this continue forward. Higher education is so important as a platform for setting people up for success in life. And the more we have access to higher education institutions, the more diversity we see across those universities, I believe the more the, the more successful our society will be as a whole. And obviously there have been traditional barriers to that type of education, particularly for people of color. So that is something I'd like to see go away as well. It's certainly going to be a slow process. I may right. not see it. I may not see it go as far as I'd like to in my own lifetime. But the idea would be for me to see it trending upward. Mm -hmm. I would like to see a, you know, a push in the right direction and keep the momentum that we have and to to really end up in a space where we don't have people who are being considered for these either positions or slots in universities that aren't based on things that they've done you know obviously the idea of donor and legacy preferences and bills privileges is there's an applicant who is receiving a benefit a substantial benefit at that for work not done by that applicant and right. that is something that we don't think should happen especially right. not where other factors can't be used by others when they're applying for their positions there are only so many people, obviously, that have attended Harvard. There are only so many people who have the means to donate to Harvard on a scale that would get the dean's attention enough to put that applicant on a list that is specialized and is 
not a, not a guarantee, but certainly increases nearly seven times your likelihood of being admitted. So we just want to be in a place where that doesn't happen, where the applicant can stand on equal footing with other applicants. And like I said before, in many ways, the socioeconomic advantages for those students is already going to be in place. So they already have a leg up in terms of what they what their chances are of being admitted to those schools. So no need to add an additional leg up for being a, just a person who has a particular last name who was born into a particular family. And yeah, I'm concerned about another aspect of the uh, Supreme Court decision, which hasn't been mentioned, I don't think. And that is that it's very hard to prove a negative so if Harvard accepts any student of color and somebody decides to sue on the basis that they had a higher SAT score or whatever, how is Harvard going to be able to say, we accepted this person because of the essay and not because we were defying the Supreme Court decision? So that is a piece that we have thought about, and it's going to be a very complex thing. It's going to be a very complex thing to decide at Harvard how they build their new policies. And frankly, it's not for me to speak on because I'm not at Harvard. I'm not a Harvard admissions officer and I'm not in the admissions office. So to a certain extent, I can give my opinion on what I think is helpful, but they're going to need to craft a way to combat that very problem because it is something that will almost certainly happen. It's you know, those types of lawsuits have been filed in several states against several universities before. And with this particular decision that just came down, there's likely to be more litigation based on exactly the point that you made. So one way is to say, you know, we're not going to use these as plus factors anymore, where you can identify the, you know, some of the reasons why or the scores for these particular applicants and what benefit they receive either at least at that point for race, but now in terms of what their application is. And I think there is still a fair amount of discretion that goes to universities for their admissions practices and, and who they admit. It's just about the process is really what the Supreme Court is or has opined on. And so there's a way of doing it and saying, we identified this person, I'll just give an example. If there's an applicant, who, you know, a black applicant who says, I led my black student union at my high school for three years of the four while I was in high school. And it allowed me to have conversations about race to present seminars on race and, and things like that. And I write that in my application. And Harvard reads it and says, well, this person is, you know, not just a black person. They're a person who has leadership quality. They're a person right. who has an opportunity to show other people how to write up presentations, how to conduct presentations, how to organize right. folks. So it's really about a skills-based and, and merit-based type of assessment that Harvard should be able to defend. And in that particular example, I think there's plenty of things you can say about that person's mm -hmm. pedigree, that person's credibility, that person's aptitude for learning and for engaging in extracurricular activities 
and to follow a passion that they had. And I think those are all sort of admirable qualities that a university would be interested in pursuing and having as an example to others at the university. So from my perspective, I think I take your comments and particularly about the idea that universities will just say, well, sue me, you know, for lack of better words, right? And so there is one piece of it that is different slightly because here the Department of Education provides significant funding to Harvard. And so not to say that Harvard is a space where it couldn't survive without Department of Education funding, that's likely not the case. But what the department could do is say, well, you can say, sue me, but you will receive no funding from us. And I think what that would do, and I think the threat of that, and it could be a very real threat from the Department of Education, the idea is that Harvard doesn't want to be an institution that's typically on the wrong side of these issues. And I don't think it wants to be a university that doesn't receive public funding on this very basis. So for example, if the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights had found that this practice, these practices violate Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, then that's going to be an important finding. And that finding will say not only to Harvard, but to the U.S. as a whole, this practice is not in line with Title VI. It is not in line with federal civil rights law. And Harvard is in violation of federal civil rights law. And I don't think that headline would please Harvard very much. So they have a real incentive to adhere to at the very least what the Department of Education directs. And if it comes to the point where the Department of Education were to have that finding, that conclusion, I think that it would create a situation that Harvard would comply with. So you've uh, helped see how uh, the Department of Education, an extension of the Supreme Court, and it's an interesting question, of course, whether or not the administration, which definitely does not like what's going on in the Supreme Court now, would go down that path. Um, I think you're quite right uh, that uh, would be a severe threat if the Department of Education went there. You helped me realize one option would be for Harvard then to put another card on the table and say, okay, we'll be done with legacy admissions. In other words, say, we're good guys uh, doing this. We just know you're wrong about this affirmative action matter. And it's going to be a cesspool of uh, of uh, lawsuits uh, endlessly into the future, uh, bring it on on lawsuits and uh, even make a deal then with the Department of Education. Now, I'm dealing in a wild fantasy here. Uh, I don't think none of this is going to happen, but uh, I do think it's important to understand the larger situation which you've helped us see. I'll finally finish by noticing that having been a kid who came from the cornfields in Indiana to Harvard, I was definitely not one of those people who formed a community with uh, legacy. Um, uh, some of my yeah. classmates had uh, uh, Roman numerals after their names, and there were several down those Roman numerals. Uh, 
while they may have formed a community, there's also the folks outside of the group who have their nose pressed up against the glass yeah. plate, uh, never actually getting in. I think a lot of people would argue, well, the legacy people are probably going to be better candidates anyway because they had a parent who went to Harvard and therefore they got a good education and they came up in a good family and they're rich and, and they got tutored and, and all that kind of stuff. The point I think you made was that there are a lot of people who are better qualified than those folks. So it was indeed these legacies are getting a leg up beyond the whole growth and, and bringing up and probably they went to a private school and all that kind of stuff. I think that's a very important point. <clears throat> yes. And to that point, I think the idea is certainly there are a number of of legacy applicants who are admitted and they are very qualified for the reasons that that you and I have both talked about. And then there's another group of applicants who are vaulting over the people who are qualified, who are applicants of color. And they're going from an unqualified, I shouldn't say unqualified, but I should say less qualified. They are less qualified than many applicants of color, but their status as a legacy or a donor related applicant has the effect of vaulting them over applicants of color into the admissions process and into being an admitted student. So a certain portion of legacy students who are currently at Harvard would still be at Harvard, but and it's in the same way, many of the students who are at Harvard, who are legacy students, would not have been at Harvard, but for their affiliations. Yeah, so it seems to me that uh, the schools as well as the society is kind of back where it was many years ago, disappointingly to us all and amazingly to us all. But in, in reading Kent's book, uh, one of the main points and one, one thing that I remember from it and was impressed by was how the progress that was made at that time was to some extent the work of some very dedicated and kind of ingenious and creative deans, yep. uh, uh, fair, fairly famous deans like Glimp, I think, and another Monroe. one or two. Monroe. So, what? Monroe, yeah. Yeah, Monroe. So, in talking, so so I'm wondering uh, uh, your opinion whether we're back in a time where the where leadership in the universities will make a big difference in, in talking to. Um, one of our members who, who couldn't be here today, I guess, uh, uh, who's uh, involved with Harvard today, and, and his view is that uh, the administration at Harvard right now being led by a Haitian heritage female president uh, suggests that they're willing to try some new things. And, uh, and I'm just wondering whether the landscape, the legal landscape is such that uh, it, there might be room for creative, lots of creative uh, things to be done by willing and uh, good-hearted university leadership. So to that question, I would say it's absolutely of vital importance to have buy-in from the administration's professionals, right? I think that those people are on the ground. They have a special and unique 
viewpoint. They have access to information that others don't have and frankly, access to historical information that many don't have. So they will be crucial in creating policy that will inure to the benefit of the university, certainly, but also can be shaped in such a way, whether creative or whether new, just as a as a policy to put forward an, a new way of thinking, or, or at the very least to accomplish the same goal, there can be many different paths. So finding those new paths is going to be challenging, but it's a group effort. And one of the components of that group is going to be the admin the administration at, at Harvard. I have two or three little short questions. One is um, whether the uh, there's any information about the difference between legacy uh, legacy students and donor legacy students. Like, what percentage of the people who went to Harvard actually? Our donors, or what percentage of the applicants come from donor rather than just legacy? Do we know anything about that? So we do know a bit of on the second point. You know, the people who go to Harvard and then become donors is a bit of a different data set. One that would be difficult to track for anyone except for Harvard itself. And so we don't necessarily have access to that type of data. But in terms of the percentage of class that are made up or comprised of donor related applicants, we do have data on that. And so what I will do after this is I will share in the email chain, both the federal civil rights complaint that we filed that references and cites mm -hmm. a lot of the data, as well as the two data sets for the most part that we pulled from. And in those data sets, you can see that there are preferences, for example, for recruited athletes, for legacy students, for donor-related applicants, and for the children of faculty and staff. So our complaint focuses on the donor and legacy applicants in particular, but there are other preferences that are analyzed in the study that, that I'm referring to. And so I'll share those as well. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that's interesting. So they could even have a preference if they chose to for people who were engaged in uh, social justice activities before they came to Harvard <laughs> or, uh, you know, civil, right. civil rights or uh, civic engagement. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, that's just as important as athletes. Another question uh, I know, uh, I noticed John Woodford's point in the chat that the percentage of black students had gone up from less than 1% to over 15% in this period, which was uh, interesting. Uh, and I wondered, was there ever a goal or a target explicitly set um, for black students or any students in terms of achieving diversity? And a sub point of that, do we have data on the uh, percentage of Native Americans who uh, have become Harvard students since they are the percentage that is victims of the largest disproportionate amount of poverty in the country? Sure. So to your first question on the targets, as far as I know, at least since quotas have been banned by the Supreme Court, there have not necessarily been explicit targets. And that very well may be because of the decisions from the Supreme Court that have prohibited quotas as a way of ensuring diversity on campus at higher education institutions. So 
internally, perhaps there's a target. I can't say one way or the other. But what I can say is that Harvard has stated many times that it seeks to have its classes reflect the type of diversity that we see in our communities. So that's as far as I've seen that they've gone in terms of, of representation about what they want the balance of their classes to be. On your second question about Native Americans, there's much less data that I have seen on it. And in particular, with respect to the data that the data sets that I will share later, I don't see uh, much in terms of the data being broken down in that sense. From my, from my memory, the breakdown that they used for racial categories were white students, African-American students, Hispanic students, and Asian-American students. There certainly is a category in many of the areas of the data set that refer to you know, other racial categories, but not, as far as I know, broken down into Native Americans as uh -huh. one, one specific subset. That's pretty terrible. We should get them to do that. Uh, we, we need to know. And one other question, do they have any data on uh, class background on people raised in poverty as opposed to not? I think that was less a focus of the of the data that I have seen. They may very well have that. I'm not aware of a breakdown based on socioeconomic status, but that that may exist. I think what was circulated by I'm not sure who at this moment, but the study that was recently done. Uh, about Harvard, uh, about Harvard in general, uh, about what the status is of percentages of people who are rich families and how they benefit from that status, I think may be a little closer to the socioeconomic status data set that you might be looking for. But from my research, I, I have not come across a, a breakdown for socioeconomic status. Thank you. David Othma. Uh, I, Jerry and I both went to Andover. When we went to Harvard, a disproportionate number of people, especially compared to today, disproportionate number of our classmates went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and other, other Ivy League schools. Some, some went to Stanford. That has changed pretty dramatically over the, over the years since we were there. As, as I understand it. Do you know how that has changed and, and why that has changed? That is something that I haven't studied myself in terms of why, what the distribution is and why that distribution may have changed. I'm sure that the internet and access to information from other schools, access to you know, very good professors at other schools and other reasons to attend other universities has been a piece of why those students are choosing to go to other schools. There's also a geographical component to that where Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, you know, they're all sort of in the Northeast, Stanford obviously being an exception to that. But just the desire to go to a different geographic location could be one example of a reason to attend a particular university. So I'm not, I have not studied that as an issue, but I could imagine that there are those types of reasons for the distribution changing. And I think in some ways, other universities have leveled up in a lot of ways in terms of what their offerings are and and what they're able to provide for students as resources. So I think that might also have to do with it. 
But you're you're suggesting that, that it's a function of where the kids want to go, not a function of the colleges taking fewer people from the elite prep schools, put it put it that way. So I, I'm not certain about that. I, I was suggesting to your initial point that the student choice could be driving. it. I'm not sure if that's because they, for example, want to go to Harvard, Yale or Princeton, but are not being admitted at the same rates. Mm -hmm. I'm not I, I can't respond on that. But I think student choice is probably a, a piece of that component. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. And to the extent that we have development on the Department of Education's investigation, I'm happy to come back and share my thoughts. And if there's any other topic that you think of that you'd like to discuss, I'm happy to be here. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Listening Bye -bye. To you. That was Michael Kibbins. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>